us is hopefully designed to spur us in some of those areas. Maybe things we thought about before, but we need to revisit. So, uh, for instance, if you look, open it up and look in the middle column, at the top there, the basic foundations class, following Christ. Basic introduction to Jesus. I mean, who is this guy? Why should we follow him? Uh, or if you look down under better equipped, uh, the next class we're going to be having is Bible study principles and method. Maybe you feel like you open up the Bible and you don't even know where to start. Like, how do you interpret it the right way? How do you study it? And there's ways to do it. it the Bible just doesn't mean what everyone wants it to mean. There's it had an intended message and purpose that we can discover. Or if you look on the right-hand panel there, managing money God's way. Um, finances are a huge deal in our lives. Whether you're rich or you're poor, money is a huge deal. And that's a great class on that. Uh, we've been talking about money here in Luke chapter 12. So maybe that's a way you can follow up on this sermon series on uh, what Jesus is teaching on finances is. So anyway, be thinking about that. There's a sign-up table downstairs in the coffee uh, hall, which is right, the fellowship hall, which is downstairs. You can go down there and sign up, find out more information, ask questions. But anyway, you'll be hearing more about this. I just encourage you to uh, keep it in mind. You know, there's seven-week courses. It's the kind of thing you can plug into, plug out. Take one, take a break for a couple of months, plug back into one uh, to fit your schedule. And our hope is that during the year, all of us would take at least one course just to keep continuing education growing in our faith in Christ. So, Well, with that said, would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Today we're studying verses 22 to 34. Any children here, kindergarten to second grade are free to be dismissed to children's church if they wish. Kindergarten to second grade. And the rest of us will be studying Luke chapter 12. It's on page 1031. If you are using a pew Bible and are kind of wondering where that is, it's on page 1031, Luke chapter 12. Let me just read this text, verses 22 to 34. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will He clothe you? O you of little faith. And do not set your hearts on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief 
comes in and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a great text. Well, uh, today we come to another text on Jesus' teaching on money. Jesus had a lot to say about money, and uh, here are two texts. Uh, last Sunday and this Sunday, we've been looking at this theme. And we've been uh, looking, Jesus has been addressing the two common problems we have with money. There are two issues that we have with money, and they're both heart issues, they're both attitudinal issues. And the first one we looked at last week, do you remember? Remember what that was? It was greed, right? Last Sunday we looked at the teaching on greed, that we shouldn't want more and more, and then when we get more we shouldn't hoard it for ourselves, that that's contrary to the ways of a disciple of Christ. Well, this Sunday we look at the other problematic attitude we have toward money. One is greed, the other is anxiety and worry. I mean, let's face it, we worry about money. This is something that everybody seems to worry about. Uh, Young people worry about whether or not they can afford to ever buy a house or have a a place to live here on the South Shore where there's such a high cost of living. Uh, Middle-aged people worry about whether or not they might get laid off and how they're going to pay their mortgage. And now I've got three kids who are almost getting ready to go to college. How am I going to afford that? Especially when two of them might be in college at the same time. Uh, older people start to worry about whether or not their retirement savings will be adequate and whether they might have to work in their retirement. Uh, poor people worry about making ends meet. And rich people worry about their companies making ends meet. Uh, we, we worry about money. Of course, worries about money are one of the things that kill marriages. You know, the top ten, the top ten list of things that cause marriages difficulty, that's at the top, near the top of the top ten list. People fighting over money worries and issues. And so Jesus addresses it here, just as he addressed greed. And, and notice that he, just as he said in verse 15 last week, be on your guard against greed. So he gives us a command this week in verse 22. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about your basic provisions. God will take care of your food, clothing, and shelter. This is the promise that God gives his children. Now, that sounds kind of extreme to us. Like, can I really trust God for my finances? Can I really depend upon him? But imagine how much more extreme it would have been for the original audience. Because when Jesus was speaking in those days, he was talking to uh, an agrarian culture. He was talking to people who practiced subsistence farming. And they could have very easily lost the farm, you know, quite literally. They, uh, you know, a year of drought, a year of pestilence, the guy pulls his back, there's no disability. You know, how, how is he going to farm when he's laid up in bed? And so this was a real danger back then for those people. And Jesus says to them, don't worry about the basic necessities of life. Uh, Or even worse for the disciples. You know, the disciples were subsistence farmers and subsistence workers who had given that up to just follow Jesus around. That was basically their job. They walked around after Jesus. You know, what do you do for a living? I I follow him. Any good money in that? There's actually no money in that. I just follow him around. He teaches. I don't get it. And I follow him around some more. That's the disciples. <laughs> and so you can imagine them thinking like, what, are we nuts? Where are we going to get money for this? This, this is crazy. 
And Jesus is saying to the disciples, who have taken, in a sense, a lifestyle of financial um, fragility, and he says, don't worry, don't worry. You know, didn't I teach you guys to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. God's going to provide for you. And so this is a promise that God will meet our needs. All of our wants? No. All of our greeds? No. Um, Maybe what we think we need isn't what we need, but God knows what we need. And he promises that he's going to take care of us. And so what we have in verses 23 to 28, just to lay out the topography of the passage for you, verses 23 to 28 uh, are a series of reasons why we shouldn't be afraid. A list of arguments. Jesus is trying to press the case why we shouldn't worry about our basic necessities. Here's one reason, verse 23. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothes. It reminds me of what he said at the end of verse 15 when he said, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Uh, Life is about more than just having the things we need. Uh, And yet we so often forget that. We are told that life is about stuff. In fact, we get a kind of tunnel vision. That's what worry and anxiety does. It gives you tunnel vision. When you get distressed about something and you begin fretting, it locks my vision in on one thing and I can't see anything else. I don't have any perspective. And I think that life is about that one little thing. And Christ is saying, that's not what your life is about. It's not about money and clothing. It's about something else. What is our life about anyway? Why are we here on planet Earth? Is it just to consume things and possess things? The reason we're here on planet Earth is to know, love, serve, worship, and proclaim God. Life is about God. That's real life. He is life. And we can't know life without Him. There is no life without Christ. And so Jesus invites us to a broader view of the meaning of life. And then in verses uh, 24, and um, yeah, verse 24, he, he brings God into the picture. And he uses another reason why we shouldn't worry, why we should trust God. So look at verse 24. He says, Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Now, when I imagine this story, because every time I read a story, I picture it in my mind. I've seen too many movies. Everything's a movie to me. So I'm, I'm thinking about how I would, how I would film this shot. And, and the way I would film it, it's not in the Bible, it's just Jeremyology here. But the way I would film it is, Jesus is in a field. He's sitting down, and the disciples and everyone's around him in this field. And as he's talking about this, you know, this, this raven flies over. Or maybe there's a raven on a rock nearby and it's hopping around. And I just imagine, you know, in Jesus saying, well, you know, look at that bird. Check out that bird. He doesn't labor. He doesn't work. He doesn't check his email. He's not doing conference calls. That bird doesn't put in long hours trying to close a deal till three in the morning working on a proposal. He doesn't put in overtime. He's just a bird. Well, okay, that bird, that, that was pretty well fed. That's a fat little bird there. <laughs> God's feeding that bird. They're ravens. They're scavengers. They just go around and eat dead things. That's a raven's life, you know, looking for dead stuff, basically. And God's like, I even take care of the scavengers. God feeds even those kinds of animals. And so the analogy is simple. Who's more important, people or birds? People! I know, which is kind of a lost concept in our culture. There are some people today who think animals are more important than people. They aren't. 
People are more important than animals in God's creation. People are made in the image of God. I'm not saying animals, therefore, are terrible and we shouldn't treat them well, but I'm saying people are more important than animals. That's God's word. And so we need to realize that if God takes care of the creation that way, and so should we, how much more so will he feed us? That's the point. God will care for us. And then he uses the same idea, just different imagery in verse 27. He says, consider how the lilies grow. And again, I imagine him sitting in a field and looking out over the wildflowers. He says, they do not labor or spin. You don't see lilies reading clothing magazines. You don't see you know, lilies at the mall you know, walking around <laughs> looking for bargains. Um, and he says, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes grass, how much more will he clothe us, oh, you of little faith. I uh, got an email from a lady this week, and <clears throat> she, was, uh, she knew I was going to be preaching on this passage. She just wanted to send me an email, and she said I could read it to you, so I'm going to. Uh, she says, um, I have to share with you about this passage. I see this passage as a command, a promise, and a way of life. She says, back when my husband and I were new Christians, my husband was in landscaping. So often in the winter, there was not much income. She said, outside the kitchen window where I sat and had my Bible study time in the morning, there was a tree which I named my worry tree. On this tree were winter berries which the birds would eat. This tree was God's illustration of this passage for me. As I saw how God fed those birds in the winter, I knew that God would provide our needs. As long as I did not get afraid and sought the Lord first, I had peace. She says, that was more than 10 years ago, and since then I have seen the Lord clothe and feed us in amazing ways. He's provided our needs by giving, she lists a bunch of things here, three cars, three dishwashers, a refrigerator, a dryer. He built our current house. He gave us a place to live while that happened, and I could go on and on. And she said, more important than meeting our physical needs, though, he has grown us to be able to trust him when there seems to be no solutions or the task doesn't seem easy. This passage was definitely, has definitely been a way of life for us. She says, I guess everyone has some kind of challenge, and this has been ours. Look at the birds. God feeds them. Look at the grass. God clothes them. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? And I guess that's what it comes down to, right? It's really this is a matter of faith, isn't it? Do I trust God or not <clears throat> in those times of crisis when it seems that there is no solution, will God provide? Got a great quote here from George Mueller. Uh, he says, The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. See, anxiety and faith, they, they're like oil and water. They will not mix. One will push out the other, or the other will push out the one. One way or the other, one is going to rule in our hearts. Either I'm going to be a person of little faith and big anxiety, or I'm going to be one of great faith and little anxiety. That's the way to fight against faith, is to trust God. Really, this is a theological issue. You think you have financial problems. I'm here to say there's nobody in the room who has a financial problem. All we have are theological problems. <laughs> All we have are spiritual problems. It's just about God. Do I trust Him or not? Will God provide for me or not? That's the theological issue before us. Because God can take care of the rest. 
And so God presents Himself to us. Do I trust that He really is my life? We say, you know, sing these songs about God being our life. But when it comes right down to it, do I believe that God is my life or is my life bound up in things that I have to get for myself because I'm terrified? And God calls us to a radical kind of faith to trust Him. And this is, of course, this is bigger than money. That's just one issue. But I mean, I got a lot of things you could worry about. You, you want things to worry about? I mean, let's start making a list, right? We're worried about relationships. We're worried about school. We're worried about our children. We're worried about the fact that we don't have children. We're worried about, you know, our house. We're worried about our health. And, you know, we can worry about anything. And the same principle adheres. What do I believe about God? Is God my loving Father who can care for me or not? And this is the fundamental theological question at the base of worry that I have to constantly come back to as a Christian. Sometimes on an hourly basis, really, to keep coming back to this question. Um, I read a story about a guy and his family who were trying to put this into practice. And they, what he did, it's kind of funny, he took a brown paper bag, he wrote God on the outside of it, and they taped it to their kitchen door way up high. And the rule in their house was, if you were stressing out about something or worrying, you sat down, you prayed about it, you gave it over to the Lord, and then you wrote it on a piece of paper, and to sort of symbolize your resolve to give it to God, you would put the piece of paper you know, in the God bag, just to show to yourself and to say to everyone, I'm trusting God for this. The other rule was, if you started talking about it, worrying about it again, you had to get a chair, get up, and fish it out, and take it out so everyone to see and the author of the story said, you would be amazed at how much time I spend on that chair <laughs> fishing those things back out. So don't worry. God can care for those things. It really comes down to a theological issue of who is God and do I trust Him? But notice that Jesus goes on from there. From verses 29 to 31, we have a big sort of transition in this text. He, he moves us from the negative prohibition, do not worry, to a positive. We have to do something else instead. It's not just enough to say, stop worrying. Quit it. I mean, that's hard to do. Stop worrying. How do you not worry? I mean, really. Someone tells you, don't worry about it. Like, well, thanks. I mean, how do I stop that? Okay, maybe I can trust God. I'm learning to do that. But I think there has to be something more. Not only should we stop worrying, we have to do something else. Because that's the nature of faith, you see. Faith is not defensive. Faith goes on the offensive. Faith is not just sitting in a bunker and saying, okay, God will take care of me, I'm, I'm not worried. There's something about the nature of faith that when you trust God, it's not enough just to not worry. You know, faith goes in new directions. Faith opens up new horizons. Faith advances. Faith takes up arms and goes forward. And so when you start trusting God, He'll lead you in a new direction. He'll open up a new way before you. And so it's not enough just to say, not worry. We've got to have something else. What is it? that we have in place of the worry. And so the answer comes in verses 29 to 31. He says, Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry. Again, that's a negative. For the pagan world runs after all such things and your Father knows that you need them. You will not be marked as distinctly Christian if your life is consumed with anxiety. Everyone does that. Instead, verse 31, here's the positive. Three words. Seek His kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. In other words, our lives should be about seeking the kingdom of God. In other words, um, you know, God is the king. He reigns over everything. And so to seek his kingdom means that I seek that in my life. I want him to reign over all of my life. I want him to be the king over everything that I do. I want 
to be thinking about how to advance and proclaim God's glory. That's what it means to seek His kingdom. And so that replaces the other. You know, that's how we defeat sin. How do you kill the desire for sin in your life? You know, maybe pick one, you know, lust. How do you destroy lust in your life? That's a very powerful sin. It's a very powerful temptation. And the answer is you just find something better, which is Christ. You have to replace the evil desire with a greater desire. Show me the kingdom of God and the banquet of the kingdom of God. And then I'll, I'll be like, why am I eating the saltines of sin? And forget that. I want the kingdom of God. And so the more we see of God and the more we see of His glory, the more we long for Him instead of the things of this world. He replaces that desire with something much greater. Um, or to put it another way, what does it mean to seek the kingdom of God? I think the way you do it is you learn to treasure Jesus Christ. You make Jesus your treasure. As he says in verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever I treasure, I will pour my life into. If I treasure money and if I treasure prosperity, then I'm going to spend my time obsessing about the ticker tape and about my investments and how do I make more money? How do I turn another buck? If I treasure my wife, which I should, then I'm going to be thinking about her. I'm going to be thinking about you know, how she's doing. I'm going to call her during the day because I care about her. Uh, if I treasure um, my looks, then I'm going to be you know, at the gym 15 hours a week and dieting and f- obsessing about my hair and my clothing. And if I treasure Christ and His kingdom then it's natural. I'm going to pour my resources into the kingdom of God. I'm going to pray for the kingdom of God. When I hear about people going on a trip to South Africa, uh, it's not going to be like, isn't that nice, those people are doing that nice thing. It's going to be like, wow, they're taking Jesus into the public schools. Oh, this is the greatest thing I've heard all week. Because that's where your heart is, in Christ. And so, to seek the kingdom of God means that we make Christ the treasure of our heart. That He is our life. He is our everything. As the Apostle Paul said, whatever is my profit, whatever i got going for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, Paul said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And so Paul's whole life purpose was about knowing and loving Christ. And when we do that, that becomes the replacement for worry. It's not enough to say, stop worrying, God will take care of you. I mean, that is good. But we need to now say, and seek the kingdom of God. And when that happens, notice the flow of logic in the passage. Just follow this logic with me. So if we stop worrying and we trust God to meet our basic physical needs, and we instead let our hearts become captivated with the glory of God in Christ, then what happens is we are liberated financially. Look at verse 32. He says, Don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So we're going to have the kingdom of God. Now we're free to do whatever. You know, That's a great guarantee, isn't it? <laughs> that if you seek the kingdom of God, you'll have it. God's already given it to us. I was thinking about all the other things in life that there are no guarantees for that you could seek. You could seek wealth, and maybe you'll have it, maybe you won't. You could seek a relationship on eHarmony and, you know, maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't. It might, might not. I don't know. You can seek 
uh, fame, and you might find it, or you might die an obscure person that no one cares about. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work out. But I do know this. If I seek the kingdom of God, you will find it. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. The one thing I know for sure is that if you seek Christ and His kingdom, He promises to answer those who seek Him. And so that's the one guarantee, and it's really the only thing that matters. What a deal. (laughs) You're guaranteed to find it if you will seek after Christ. And when we do that, as I said, it liberates us financially. We are now free. And so look what he says in verse 33. Having dissipated our worries, having directed us toward the kingdom of God, we are now free to use our finances for the glory of God. Verse 33, sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Go on eBay, have a yard sale, just sell it. Take the money, use it to help people who don't have it. Like, oh, I mean, you can't mean that literally. I mean, you know, this must be in some spiritual sense. I don't know, that's what it says. <laughs> just let sit with that for a minute. Sell your stuff, give it to the poor. Oh, what's the business model? There isn't a business model. Just do it. Well, actually, there is a business model. Check it out. In doing so, we will provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. So there is a business model. It's that you lay up treasures in heaven forever that can't ever be touched by the vicissitudes of the stock market. Wow, that's a great business model. So you can't take it with you, but apparently you can send it ahead of you. That's what I understand from this text. And so he says, sell your possessions. And I think that's one of the practical outworkings of this, is that trusting God for our resources frees us up to use our resources for the kingdom of God. And last Sunday we talked about this a little bit. Remember last Sunday we talked about tithing, giving our money to the local church, um, giving money to uh, missions, um, giving money to the purposes of God's proclamation of the gospel. Well, this Sunday I want to look at the other half of biblical teaching on giving, which is to give to those who are in need. Uh, to give to poor, to the poor. Uh, God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to do that. And then we also need to love our neighbor as ourself and to give to those uh, who are without. And that's the command here. It's sell your possessions and give to the poor. When you look at the Old Testament teaching on money, what you find when God gave all of his laws to Israel is that you found both of those strains. Uh, there was a call to tithe in the Old Testament, and that tithe went to support the work of the temple. It went to the priests and to the worship of God, to the proclamation of God's glory in the temple. Uh, but then there were also other laws that were geared toward helping those who were struggling financially. Uh, so, for instance, you know, one of the laws was when you harvest your field, you don't harvest the corners. That was one of the laws God gave them. So, you, you know, you're harvesting your field, and it's always this kind of weird oval shape. And the reason was was so that the poor could come and glean from the parts you didn't harvest. Or if you go over your vineyard or your field once to harvest, don't go back a second time looking for things that you missed. Uh, Just let it sit. Let the poor come behind you and glean and pick up what they can. Uh, Every seventh year, you're supposed to let your fields lie fallow so that whatever came up, people could just go out and take who needed it. Uh, Every seventh year, you're supposed to cancel debts in Israel. I mean, imagine that. Imagine if every seven years... All your debt was like, poof. (laughs) Wow, what a country, right? I mean, great. (laughs) Who wouldn't want to live in Israel? I mean, wow, what a great nation. Uh, So it was, but but what what is the basis of it? God wanted to inculcate generosity 
into the hearts and minds of his people because he had been generous to them. And, and so as we move to the New Testament, we find the same thing. There's a call to give to the work of the gospel. Although there isn't a specific tithe ordered or commanded in the New Testament, I mean, a lot of Christians use tithing as a principle. The point is to set aside money to give toward the work of the Lord. And then the other thing we find in the New Testament is the continued call to give to those who are poor. In fact, uh, put a bookmark here and flip over two books, Luke, John, Acts, chapter 4. It's on page 1081. 1081, Acts chapter 4. You'll remember Acts is the second volume of Luke. Luke wrote two books, Luke and Acts, the volume 1, volume 2. So this is the, the follow-up. Let me just read Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. This is what it was like in the early church. All the believers were one in heart and mind, No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Get this, verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who had lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone just as he had need. I think that's a baseline for our church. I think that should just be like an assumption in our church is that if somebody is a part of our church community, if they're part of our church family, that there's, we're not going to have anyone in our church who, hasn't, who lacks the basic necessities. Now, this wasn't socialism. This wasn't that all the people were putting all their money into a common pot and dividing it up equally. It was, just, it was charity. It was love. It was better than socialism. It was love. People cared about each other in the church. And I just think that's a baseline. If someone in our church who's part of our church family doesn't have a car and for whatever reason they can't get one, I just think we should be able to come up with a car among all of us. If there's someone in our church who doesn't have a, a place to live or you know, is looking for a job and struggling to find one, I think we should use our connections. You know, we should find ways to do that so that those who do have needs can find them. Uh, and, and that should be a baseline. And if we can't really provide the basic necessities for the people who are part of our church family, I mean, I just think we should disband. <laughs> We're a fake church. We're a phony church then. Uh, you know, how do we call ourselves Christians? We don't even care about each other to provide for the basic necessities. I don't know. It's my idea. Um, and then beyond that, how do we care for those who are in need in the world around us? You see, I think that our church, South Shore Baptist, I, I really do think this, this is a church that cares for its own. And I've seen in so many cases people really reaching out to our own and I think we've done a good job as a church caring for people far away. Like when Katrina hit, you know, we were able to build six houses down in the Florida coast. I mean, that was amazing. And uh, here's the Durban team going to South Africa to help people who are devastated by the AIDS uh, epidemic. I think that's wonderful. But I think maybe where we have to work on a little bit is that in between our church and the ends of the earth. I mean, how do you help the poor on the South Shore? If you're like, oh, there's no poor on the South Shore, there's no poor people in Hingham. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Believe that if you want. <laughs> there's people around us who are struggling financially for all kinds of reasons. And how do you help the poor? How do we do that? And, you know, I don't really have a good answer to that. And part of that's because I'm an evangelical Protestant. And evangelical Protestants are really, really lame when it comes to thinking about how to help the poor. It's just not something that's part of our tradition, unfortunately. And so we have to grow in this area. How do you help? Is, is helping the poor just giving handouts to everybody? 
Um, well, that's one way to help, but does that really help people? I mean, I, I'm not convinced that people who are struggling financially just want handouts. I, I'm, I, I think people have dignity, and maybe they want to, to be a part of the process of, of becoming financially stable. And so, so how do you go from giving someone a fish to teaching someone a fish, to use the old adage? You know? And I don't know. I just don't know. But I think it's a conversation that we as a church need to think about uh, as we think about the poor around us, how to help people um, get on their own feet and, and do well and prosper. And This is just a whole area that I think is uncharted territory for our church that we need to think more intentionally about how to do that and have a conversation toward. But the goal is that we uh, show our love for Christ and we show our freedom in Christ by caring for those who have financial needs and other needs around us. You know, a great example of this, John Wesley. I told you about John Wesley last Sunday. Uh, he was that great preacher in the 18th century uh, who was part of the Great Awakening. He started Methodism. And the thing about Wesley is he had that slogan. Remember that slogan? Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And for him it wasn't just a slogan. It was his way of life. Uh, Wesley really practiced this. It's interesting. He, he kept a journal of his expenses over the years. And when he first started out in ministry, he was living on 30 pounds, 30 British pounds a year, uh, which at that time, you know, was a lot more than it is today. And then what happened was, over time, he started making more money because he would write books and people would buy his books and his tracts and people would give him money for the ministry so that eventually, later on in his ministry, at one point he was earning like 1,400 pounds a year. So he went from like 30 to 1,400. So, you know, I, I calculated that. I'm not great with math, but it was like, four, I think, 45 times more. Imagine if your current salary went up 45 times what it is now. I mean, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? It'd be great. You know, what would you do with that? You know what Wesley did with that? When he was earning 1,400 pounds, he was still living on 30. And every year he would take the excess and give it to the ministry and give it to the poor. So he was, you know, I think if my numbers are right, he was living on 2% of his income. And he was giving 98%. Which is <laughs> like, that can't be. How is that possible? I thought, you know, what if we set a number that we are content to live at? Like, I'm going to, you know, be content at $30,000 a year. I'm going to be content to live at $75,000 a year. I don't care. I'm going to be content to live at $150,000. You know, it's like pick a number. That's the key. Because the problem is whenever we earn more money, our standard of living goes right up to it. And we earn more money and our standard of living goes up and sometimes over it through debt. And then we go up and <laughs> we, never, we never say, that's enough. It's like we're not, we don't have permission in our culture to say, you know, that's enough. Yeah. $60,000 a year or 80000 or whatever, pick the number, that's enough for me to live on. And the rest I want to use for churches and missions and Christian schools and helping those who are in need and blah, 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 blah. I mean, wow, what if we set some number and, I don't know, maybe index it to inflation. I don't care. Whatever you want to do. But figure it out, how to, how to be content with something and to give the rest to the work of the Lord, which might be an amazing thing. And, of course, I can think of one other person who is an even greater giver than John Wesley. I mean, the, one of the richest people I ever heard of who really helped the poor is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was richer than him? God the Son at the Father's right hand? I mean, he literally had everything. Literally. All things belonged to him. He created all things, and by his word, all things held together. He was clothed. Oh, you should have seen his clothes. He was clothed in the divine glory that shone like the sun. And even the holy angels, when they came into His presence, had to 
do this because He was so glorious and awesome. He was seated on the throne at the Father's right hand. All of the world was under His feet. Uh, He had myriads and myriads of angels bowing before Him as His servants, ready to do His bidding in a moment. All power, all things belong to Christ. And then He looked down from His throne and He saw us, the spiritually bankrupt. Actually, bankrupt's not enough because bankrupt implies you sort of have zero. These guys, we were in debt to God. We owe God everything and we've given Him nothing that we owe Him, so we're in debt. We are spiritual paupers. We are completely um, without any moral capital before God. Uh, We deserve one thing from God. One thing. Eternal judgment. That's the bad news. And I know people don't like to hear that, but it's the Bible. It's what Jesus taught. The only thing we earn through our lives is the damnation and judgment of God. And yet, (laughs) though that's what I've earned through my hard work, Jesus came to give me something else. He arose from His throne not in judgment, but in compassion and mercy. And for the sake of the kingdom, He was willing to give away His wealth. He took off His royal robes and He put on human flesh and on the rags of a Palestinian peasant. And He got up from His throne and He entered a manger and eventually a cross. And instead of being surrounded by angelic beings worshiping Him, which He deserved, He allowed Himself to be surrounded by the rough and tumble dirtiness of humanity and the devils that inhabit this world. And He went to the cross and there on the cross... He gave it all up. Whatever He had left, His human life that He had taken on, He even poured that out on the cross. He emptied Himself of everything but love, as the old hymn goes. All to save me who deserved nothing. And so I have now become... I'm a king. (laughs) I have all the riches because the kingdom of God is mine. Because He who is the king poured out His life for sinners. And now anybody here, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your background is, how bad you failed, if you will come to Jesus Christ and trust in Him, you will be saved and forgiven because He shed His blood so that anyone could find the kingdom of God. And so now we don't have to be afraid because He's given us the kingdom. What are we worried about? And so let us joyfully seek God's kingdom And let us give to the poor and use all of our life and everything for His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray that You would teach us to treasure You more. That we might be a people who are uh, obsessed with your glory, that we might be a people who find our joy and our happiness in knowing You, Christ, and living for You and enjoying life on this earth in relationship to You. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would help us to stop worrying about resources, that we might take our worries, whatever our worries may be, and trust You with them in prayer and put those worries in the God basket and know that You are sovereign and that You care for us. Lord Jesus, help us to have a greater vision of You and a smaller vision of our problems. And Lord Jesus, give us a longing for your kingdom so that we would give ourselves away freely. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to uh, take these big ideas and, Lord, show each one of us how to start taking concrete little steps toward living more and more for your glory. 
I pray, Lord, for those who have never learned what it means to give of their lives and their money to the kingdom of God, that they would start learning. And that those of us who do it might take new steps beyond what we've done before. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to be a people who are free and liberated to serve you joyfully without worries and without fear. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.